Welcome to the CEC Report for the 19th of May 2017. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Elisa. And on today's show, take off the blinkers Australia. China's belt and road a turning point for mankind. And secondly, UK election a unique opportunity for the world. So firstly today, take off the blinkers Australia. China's Belt and Road, a turning point for mankind. So this week, we've, or at the beginning of the week, Sunday, Monday, on the 14th to 15th of May, was an extraordinary event which took place, although most Australians probably would have no oh, idea of it. That's right. Um, I don't think I saw it mentioned in the news it at all. It wasn't mentioned on the main, so-called so mainstream news, at least. No. It might have been on SBS, but not anywhere else. Mm. So this was China's Belt and Road Forum for International Cooperation. And uh, over 100 countries were represented there, including 29 heads of government, heads of state, and as well as the UN Secretary General, the head of the IMF, and a number of other leading figures, and a whole host of non-governmental participants as well. Uh, and this also included the president of our international organisation, the Schiller Institute, uh, Helga Zepp LaRouche, she spoke at one of the sessions and at an event that occurred on the sidelines. And uh, she, she actually has been a champion, Craig, of what was known, what we called the Silk Road, the New Silk Road, for three decades. And she held hundreds and hundreds of international conferences. She spoke at an international conference in Beijing in 1996, proposing this idea, of course, uh, the Chinese President Xi Jinping only raised this in 2013. So the Chinese have just really started in the last few years and they've already made extraordinary progress. But Helga became known as the Silk Road Lady because she was just constantly promoting this as the means to unleash peace and cooperation, peace through development across the globe. And I'll just tell you how she characterised uh, the conference being in attendance there. And this was on a, uh, she was the guest on the Chinese global television networks. It was a prime time live TV interview that she did. She said, I am convinced that yesterday we experienced the formation of a new world economic order. It was a truly historic moment. And I think most of the participants at the Belt and Road Forum had that profound sense of being in the middle of making history for a new era uh, for civilization, and I am very excited because this is a phase change of humankind. Well, Alice, I think it's uh, we're talking about the One Belt and One Road, which is the OBOR, uh, an acronym. But what we're talking about here is the Economic Development Belt and the Maritime Silk Road, which is purported by Xi Jinping in 2013. And the important thing is that these are development corridors where you're increasing the capacity for trade amongst nations. And that's what's really exciting about this in that, that this is opening up you know, areas of the Eurasian land mass, for example, for development. Now, Helga Zeppel-Rusch and Lyndon Rusch have championed for many, many years, as you're saying, this idea of a land bridge. Well, what is a land bridge? Well, when you have a look at civilization, you find out that civilization for many, many years was only really um, uh, congregating around the coastal areas, around the sea, and then shipping was used for trade and so forth. And then you had civilizations go down river, navigable rivers and so forth. But that left vast areas of the continent completely and utterly underdeveloped. Yeah. Have a look at Australia, for example. Most of our internal landmass is underdeveloped. 
So what we are able to do today is look at land bridges, which is bringing technology through high-speed rail, pipelines, you know, uh, and, and good roads and so forth. These sorts of developments, particularly around rail in terms of land bridge, so that you literally open up the interior of, of, of large land masses for real economic development. In providing you provide the water, the power, you know, and the, the transportation infrastructure, you can then make previously uninhabitable areas habitable. And that's what the land bridge does. So what Helga Zeppelin-Rouge proposed many, many years ago, going back to 1997 conference, was this idea of uh, Eurasian land bridge. Yeah. where you could actually then develop the inside of countries. And this is very, very important for Australia because our country is vastly underpopulated, vastly underdeveloped. Mm -hmm. The technology exists for us to develop the inside of our country and that's why it's so crucially important that we participate yep. in the One Belt, One Road project. And we had a representative, a couple of representatives at that uh, conference in Beijing. Uh, the main representative being, and it should have been the Prime Minister, that should have been the seriousness we gave this, but it was the Trade Minister Steve Chobo, uh, who was not exactly enthusiastic actually. He reflected the official uh, position backed up by the, our Anglo-American allies on what China's real intention is here. And he said, we see opportunities for collaboration, but we take decisions about initiatives in Australia on the basis of what is in Australia's national interest as if this somehow wouldn't be in our national interest, it's just, it's nuts. Um, but Daniel Andrews was also there, the Victorian Premier, and he had a bit more of an excited response, didn't he? Yeah, well, he actually showed real leadership here, Elisa, and it was actually very inspiring to see him. And his enthusiasm, you know, for what he did, he, he began to, to broker with obviously a large trade delegation from Victoria, which is a long way away from China, actually. But, you know, new trade deals in railway rolling stock, he also partnering, partnering up between uh, one of our uh, big hospitals here in nuclear technologies, radio medical technologies and so forth, to Chinese hospitals and so forth. But really the key was that he was active in seeking an economic partnership, development partnership with, with companies and, and, and institutions in China. Mm. That's what we should be doing. Mm. I mean, for goodness sake, you know, China's about to build 20,000 kilometres of high-speed rail. They've got the, the leading, the world's leading technologies, yet we've got nothing. We've got, mm. We had, we only have one kilometre of high-speed rail. We have a vast corridor, a vast uh, a co a country that's empty. We need high-speed rail in this country. And we've, you know, back in uh, 2002, we put out our economic development project mm. uh, for Australia, which included La Professor Lance Andersby's Australian uh, Asian Express, which was the development of a high-speed rail system from. Melbourne up through the inside uh, of the eastern states up through to Darwin to link up with high-speed shipping into Asia, a visionary project, totally necessary. Totally necessary. We should be building that now. High-speed, now it will be high-speed freight rail, mm -hmm. or we could do it with a parallel with that with the high-speed magnetic levitation trains. That has to be decided. But I think Professor Endersby was talking about high-speed freight which you know runs at these trains run at 110 kilometers an hour plus right so you can deliver freight mm. to the port of darwin under two days right and then ship it off to asia so uh, we we promote the idea of the need for magnetic levitation train systems where you can embody freight into mm. that uh, so that you can actually even bring you know more high value goods into 
the markets of uh, Southeast Asia. And we've also been a world leader in construction of high-speed catamarans as well and other forms of shipping that we can uh, access some of the world's largest ports right here in our backyard. I mean, for goodness sake, we, you know, there's been debate about shutting down all those new contracts, defence contracts being uh, awarded to shipyards, and I think in South Australia and West Australia, Williamstown here in Victoria has left, been left out. We have a capacity to build ships in this country, in Tasmania with the high-speed catamarans and so forth. We should be embodying this development idea to expand our highly qualified workforce in the area of building ships. Mm. It's, not, it's a no-brainer, but there's an ideological fight that's going yeah, on here. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that ideological fight right after this quick break. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're talking about China's Belt and Road Forum. And I'll just mention now that there's a package of material on this in our latest Australian alert service, including uh, on how Australia can participate, which we were just briefly discussing. But as you mentioned, Craig, there are ideologies preventing Australia from moving with this wholeheartedly and embracing the potential. And of course, the Chinese uh, officials and leaders have invited us on numerous occasions and we've held back. We haven't really moved. Uh, and there was a blog that came out which was circulated by Crikey this week which gives you a little bit of an insight again into what the issue is. This was titled Australia Stuck in the Middle of China's Latest Attempt at Empire Building. And it cited a closed door session that supposedly occurred in Brisbane. We don't have the details or confirmation of this but apparently Australian defence officials presented the Belt and Road concept as a strategic threat to Australia and of course we wouldn't be surprised because in the briefing book given to the new parliamentarians who came into Canberra last year uh, they were told to be quite cautious in how they approach this um, and apparently this event happened during the visit of Chinese Premier Li Keqiang to Australia this um, closed door session in Brisbane. Um, now I want to show you how the leaders at the Belt and Road Forum, Forum addressed this because what the um, Western countries tend to do is attribute to China the same kind of uh, hidden motives that they would have. Oh, it must be a geopolitical ambition. It must be about control of the region and the world, etc., etc. Uh, and I'll just show a quick clip of the Chinese President Xi Jinping uh, in his opening address, uh, just laying out what it really is about. In pursuing this endeavor, we should be guided by the following principles. First, we should build the Belt and Road into a road for peace. The ancient Silk Roads thrived in times of peace, but lost the vigor in times of war. The pursuit of the Belt and Road Initiative requires a peaceful and a stable environment. We should foster a new type of international relations featuring win-win cooperation and we should forge partnership of dialogue with no confrontation and partnership of friendship rather than alliance. All countries should respect each other's sovereignty, dignity and territorial integrity, respect each other's development path and social systems, and respect each other's core interests and major concerns. 
So that gives you, you know, the positives of what it represents. But he then went on to say very explicitly, he said, we have no intention to interfere in other countries' in internal affairs or export our own social system and model of development or impose our own will on others. In pursuing the Belt and Road Initiative, we will not resort to outdated geopolitical manoeuvring. What we hope to achieve is a new model of win-win cooperation. We have no intention to form a small group detrimental to stability. What we hope to create is a big family of harmonious coexistence. And yeah. Well, Lisa, Australians are so brainwashed in this idea of a zero-sum game. There has to be a winner and there has to be a loser. That's what you, this is the ideology that's driving Australian politics at the moment. Mm -hmm. So when you hear this sort of thing, you know, people cynically say, oh, well, you know, that's just rubbish. Well, you know, not, not that that's our policy, but in terms of what Xi Jinping is saying, oh, no, that's not really true. You know. But think for, historically for the moment, where has China gone out mm. in, in, like America or England and pushed for empire expansion, right? Where's that, where has this empire building, empire building happened within China? It hasn't. Mm. Historically, it never has. You know, they've defended their own interests in some places, but they are not an imperial force. No. That's an Australian, we're aligned, we're aligned with that through the British Empire, through the British Crown and so forth. And that's what we've been brainwashed is the way things work. It's not true. Yeah, and it's actually based more on, you know, a very deep Confucian tradition of harmony, of building harm, harmonious relationships between nations, the idea that a rising tide lifts all boats, an idea that would be more familiar yeah, so. to... To we're, Westerners. Yeah, we're, brain, we're brainwashed with the zero-sum game. There always yeah. has to be a winner, always has to be a loser, compared, com, compared to the win-win idea mm. that you can have winners in both countries. It doesn't have to be this, uh, yeah. this geopolitical fight. And uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin you know, elaborated on that idea in quite a beautiful way, actually. I mean, he firstly said, we cannot resolve today's crises, today's modern challenges, challenges by using old approaches. We need new ones. And he talked about bringing together various of the regional trading blocks across Eurasia. He said this would make it truly concordant, balanced and all-encompassing and will allow us to realise a unique opportunity to create a common cooperation framework from the Atlantic to the Pacific for the first time in history. And he then went through this whole description of how by uplifting people and transforming their lives, this greater Eurasia project becomes not some abstract geopolitical arrangement, but without exaggeration, he said, a truly civilization-wide project looking toward the future. So we have to shift Australia's point of view, but one bit of good news is the United States and Japan, who both were not going to send a delegation, announced at the last minute that they would, and they were quite high-level delegations, and that gives a significant boost, actually, to what China did here, because it could have been mostly developing countries, um, but the fact that Japan moved, and this is of course also bolstered by the shift in the United States um, under a new president, albeit you know still very messy, uh, but a significant shift nonetheless, which Australia has to adjust to. Yeah, when you see the sort of attacks that Trump is coming under at the moment, the issue here is the fact that he intended and intends to align closer to Russia and to China. He's, that's, this has indicated that from what just happened with the delegation going to the um, conference. And this is freaking out the mm. establishment, the American uh, establishment, uh, the Anglo-American establishment, mm. I should say, to be clear. Because if there is an actual an alliance for peace between the United States and Russia, that will overturn the entire dynamic since the death of Franklin Roosevelt. Mm. 
There's a lot of people with vested interests and want to make sure that, you know, that uh, dynamic is not overturned. We're going to talk more about the shift coming out of the US and the UK right after this quick break. Welcome back to the CEC Report. UK election, a unique opportunity for the world. So we want to talk a bit here about uh, the UK election and what's at stake here and the potential, which is huge. We saw, we've seen major shifts across the world. Um, we've seen the uprising of the population across the world. We've seen people moving towards voting for non-establishment uh, style candidates, people like Trump. And of course, Trump is one thing. Um, you know, he's not the most desirable person you would want, albeit you have, you know, openings that we can try to take advantage of. We can try to steer him in the right direction, like on things like Glass-Steagall, because we've had such a significant campaign in the US for so many decades now. However, the UK is a quite a different kettle of fish because in the leader of the Labor Party, Jeremy Corbyn, you have someone who's not a political opportunist as much as Trump is, but you have a you know, politician who's been in the Labor Party on the backbench for 30 years. I mean, you know, there was no indication really, because he was a man of principle, it's a bit like us here in the CEC, there's, you don't really see a pathway for that person to come to leadership because if you stick to your principles, you generally don't get thrust into the limelight. Um, but as the crisis has broken, he has come to the forefront because he has stuck to his ideas and the people want those things. So it's old Labor uh, and his campaign for the many, not the few, really reflects a tradition in England of bringing forward um, the truth of the, what the masses are yearning for. So we're going to show a couple of clips here uh, just to see how his message is being received. On every town and every street in this country, there's something very different going on. People coming together, like the thousands of us here today in Hebden Bridge. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for those on the roof over there. Thank you for those up the tree over there. Just be careful now, make sure you don't fall in our manifesto that will come out tomorrow. I can't give you a sneak preview of it. None of you have heard anything about it up to date. We will guarantee a free school lunch for every primary school child in every school in England. A Labour government will make sure we have trade access to the European Union and protection of the rights we've achieved and protection of the rights of EU nationals to remain living in this country with family reunion as well. It's about all of our communities coming together. And this election gives us that chance and that opportunity. But it does mean all of us have got to get out there on the doorsteps with the leaflets, with the posters, and give that message to everybody else. You don't have to be frightened by what the Tories are saying. There is nothing inevitable about this election. Let's go out there and show our election message for the many, not the few. The Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn is back in Yorkshire tonight. It's his third visit since the general election was called and a sign that Yorkshire is a big draw for the political parties. Yes, big crowds turned out in Hebden Bridge and Leeds to see him today. Our political reporter James Vincent joins us from Leeds now. Uh, James, when Jeremy Corbyn uh, was in the city last week, his reception was described as something of a pop star's welcome. How was it from today? 
Yeah, exactly right. If anybody tells you uh, politics is boring, they weren't in Leeds this afternoon. There was a huge crowd here. He'd, he'd been in Hebden Bridge earlier in the day and the crowds there were so big he had to do two speeches, one inside the venue and one outside the venue. The crowds in Leeds, there was a, a few thousand people here in Leeds this afternoon. A young population here, mainly student area, a lot of young people out on the streets. Uh, really interesting to hear what he said. But just the amount of people on the streets, I've not heard that sort of reaction, that sort of chanting since I was down the road at Headingley watching England in the, in the one day. Uh, let's have a listen and a, and, a, and a look at now his reception as he got off the battle bus here in Leeds. It was amazing, people hanging on to lampposts, hanging on to trees, thousands of people in the street here in Hyde Park to see him speak. We caught up with some of the people that were, were lining uh, Queen's Road here, just to ask them why they'd come out to see the Labour leader. We saw it on Facebook and we decided to come down and show our support. Never seen crowds like this before, ever. Ed Miliband came, Gordon Brown came, I've never seen crowds like this, ever. Man of the people. Simple as that. <laughs> Simple as that. I'm just here because Jeremy Corbyn seems to be the best choice for the NHS in particular. I'm a medical student. I'll be working as a doctor next year. So um, he's the best man for the NHS in the A lot of people that don't trust politics anymore because of the lies, the deception, but he's one person who stayed true to his ideals. Now, by anyone's standards, that was a remarkable reaction today, James. What has he been talking about, though? Well, he knew his audience today, Harry, as I say, a student area, a young crowd here in Leeds today. And he trotted out the, the, the playlist of student anthems, student favourites. He was talking about ending tuition fees. He was talking about ending zero-hour contracts and making sure the living wage was £10 for everybody. He also said, wait for tomorrow. We'll have the manifesto out. Never mind the leaks. We'll have it out properly tomorrow. And you can see that all these promises are fully costed in his words. It reminded me a lot of uh, Nick Clegg before the 2010 election. He held a huge rally in Sheffield City Centre. He had the support of students then. Jeremy Corbyn seems to have that in Leeds at the moment and he's making a trademark of these stump speeches, old school campaigning on the stump. It's something that Theresa May has not been doing a great deal of. Her events have been typified by her having a lot of party members around her. Some factory workers as we saw last week but not really big public events. I think there's more of this to come. Now compare that to what you see with Theresa May where the media show images like this one where you can see oh she looks like she's surrounded by a lot of people but now look at the zoom out shop where you, shot where you actually see it's quite deceptive. She hasn't had large gatherings, she's been hidden under lock and key. And that's completely staged. Exactly. Now Labor's manifesto Craig talks about a transaction tax, a national investment bank to fund infrastructure and a firm ring fence between investment and retail banking which given that there is already a ring fence in law in British politics the indication is that they're pushing for the most extreme type of ring fence which of course would be Glass-Steagall. Of course the chance, shadow chancellor of the Exchequer John MacDonald in 2015 called for full blown Glass-Steagall. So this is looking very promising. If he were to get elected, what would be the implications for the world? Well, John, uh, Jeremy's pedigree, his, his, his history has been to stand up for principles. I mean, he's not going to back down. That means you're going to see you know, real reform in the banking system, which means the City of London taken head on and a complete change of direction for the UK, which will be in sync with what's taking place in the US. So and and also what's taking place with what's you know what we reported earlier on the whole Obol conference in China, so there's a lot of big changes 
uh, taking place. A new paradigm, as Helga said. So it's a matter of watch this space and see what happens. Mm, and get involved because it is our work promoting the ideas over many years and just many phone calls and discussions with your own politicians and so forth that makes it work. So call in and get a copy of our literature and join us again next week. Mm -hmm.